Good morning, everybody. Hey, brothers, good to have you back. You were missed. I'd like to welcome you. Oh, I, can't, I, I hate it when kids get hurt on the pews. But I love it. Yeah, I love it that we, this is going to sound strange. I love it that we have kids to get hurt on the pews. You know, it's it's just, it's wonderful to see the generations here of people sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word, it's, and to, to be here in person. Uh, just, we are blessed more than we can imagine. Um, I spent some time in Indonesia, not real long, but long enough to realize that we are very blessed to live in America, so... Just two announcements. Next week, we have fellowship meal with soup and sandwiches. Everybody is invited, so please come. And on the back table, we have laminated fighter verses, so you can grab one of these. Everything on the back table is free, basically, except for that beautiful new offering box. Um, and our goal is to fill it every Sunday. But we will not have trumpets announcing your, your, your denarii, as you put it in. We overrode you. That's why you have elders, because they override you. Yeah. I get overridden a lot, but, but that's good. Well, thank you, Andy. That was... Um, reading the precatory psalms this morning and uh, that can fire you up for sure it is interesting to think sometimes when we're called to pray for our nation's leaders um, that maybe we should pray from time to time that uh, wickedness would be destroyed um, that's that is a biblical concept but uh, then i looked at this week's uh, fighter verse in our bulletin and uh, caused me to think of things which are lovely and pure and, and good. Um, I love this passage, Romans 11. Let me read it for you, and then I'll give you an opportunity to go to prayer, to uh, prepare yourself to worship Christ today, and to think on those things that are good, pure, lovely, those things about Christ. Listen as I read, and then I invite you to privately pray, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift that to him to, that he, he might be repaid from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. You privately where you're at, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's pray now.
Oh, Father, we do come to you, and we pray for your help, O oh Lord. We pray that indeed you will preserve your people according to your steadfast love for your name. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would know that indeed it is your hand that will guide all. It is your hand that will hold all. It is your hand that will help all. And so we humbly submit ourselves to you. We do grieve for much wickedness that is about us on a day-to-day -day basis. May we be reminded again of the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of who you are. Incredible God with absolute perfect righteousness, perfect judgment, whose ways are difficult for us to comprehend and understand, but by faith we trust in you in all things. I pray that you have preserved your people. Conform us more into the image of Christ day by day. Let whatever chaos, conflict, whatever trials, whatever troubles that might fall our way, may those things simply remove those things that do not look like Christ in our life, that we indeed might be more conformed to the image of your Son and enjoy the fellowship, the friendship, the joy, the peace, all of that that is in Christ Jesus. Not for a time that is just in the future, in perfection, certainly we anticipate and wait, but even now. I pray that you'll give your people great faith and trust in you. May anxieties be resolved by a communion and prayer with you. May anger and angst disappear through the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray for myself and pray for your people that, again, we would have great deep-seated joy that doesn't change because of the direction of whatever winds might blow our way, but because of the steadfastness of who you are. May your steadfast love embrace each one of your saints. I pray that it will overflow into the lives of those that we are, are with and around and are exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis, that they indeed also may see the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that that fruit would indeed remain for future generations. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 2, 10, and 11 reads, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's take our hymn books and stand, and we'll sing, uh, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, number 314.
morning, church. It's wonderful to see you all here today. Just want to take a few minutes to uh, give you what should be this year just a monthly mission update. Before I get started, for any of you who hadn't noticed, um, we we, uh, we partner our, our mission efforts with uh, Anchored in Truth um, out of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And in the um, in the, the downstairs hallway, there's a, uh, a world map there and a little informational piece on you know as many of them as we could get information on. I think there's somewhere close to 60 of them now um, of the the church plants and missionaries. I tend to communicate with Josh Tancordo in Pittsburgh, who we've had here before. We've chatted with him um, uh, via uh, video chat multiple times. Um, so I, I tend to come up and read, you know, a prayer update from them, uh, maybe one or two other folks. But um, most of the contact uh, cards down there, or the information cards, they have a, a way to get in touch with those folks if if uh, you want to pick out one or two that you want to, you know, send an email to or, or pray for the things on their list there, uh, please do. That, that's what that information is down there for. Um, so I just want to read through uh, some of the, uh, the bits that Josh sent me back towards the start of the month on ways that uh, we can keep, uh, keep them in prayer and keep them uh, in mind uh, as we enter this, this new year. Uh, this is from Josh Tancordo in Pittsburgh. Psalm 100, verse 4, tells us to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, praise his name. What a wonderful way to enter a new year with praise and thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he's done. Without a doubt, God's greatest act has been accomplished through Christ as he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yet it is also very good and right to praise God for his many other blessings as well. One of the more significant blessings uh, our church experienced this past year took place in uh, December 10th when our three elders traveled to the offices of a closing company and officially purchased the church property we've been telling you about for several months. Praise God that we now officially own this property. We now move on to renovations, which will likely take about six months. Probably the biggest prayer request for this next season is that God would help us, and our elders especially, to be focused not on building renovations only, but on the true building of God, the people of the church. Please, please pray that as helpful of a tool as a physical meeting structure might be, it would not consume our attention but that we would be just as diligent as we've ever been about making disciples. In addition, one of our church members has just recently started an evangelistic Bible study with uh, uh, three uh, guys. Two of them are non-Christians. The third uh, is a Christian who came to faith recently through another Bible study and is being trained to hopefully do one of his own in the future. Please pray for Logan and Leo to come to faith through these studies. In addition, we've been having two non-Christians uh, in particular attend our church consistently and become significantly in involved in serving in our church. Their names are John and Marlene, a husband and wife. 
While there have been other folks who've been in and out, these are notable because they seem to be sticking around and giving deep consideration to the gospel. Please pray they would experience God's saving work in their hearts. As always, thank you for your prayers. Please know that we're praying for each of you to have a wonderful and blessed year in 2021. Serving him, Josh and Becky Tancordo. I, I sent Josh a follow-up email to this just asking if there's any way we could pray for their family specifically. And he mentioned these, these things. Uh, as for our family, pray for daily strength for Becky, that's his wife, as she homeschools the children. And of course, that each of the children, Caleb, Silas, Grace, and Luke, would come to faith. Pray also that Becky and, and my marriage uh, would be all that God designed it to be. So let's be in prayer about their church, the work in the church there, those folks that may come to faith, and for their, their family. I wanted to read to you quickly before we go to prayer from Hebrews chapter 13. As we try to remember to pray for, uh, for not just this, uh, this church plant and this family, but all those uh, that we support, and then churches all around the world uh, that are experiencing uh, different ways of, of tribulation and trial and persecution. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. We should remember and pray for these folks in our country who are experiencing different difficulties but also around the world there are a lot of a lot of churches around the world that it is very dangerous just for them to gather and attend as we're able to do this morning and we should remember those folks always and pray for them would you pray with me today lord we praise you this morning that we are able still to gather as you've instructed us to do, to worship you as a body, and the blessing that comes with that. Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Pittsburgh as they have many challenges ahead of them. We, we praise you for the provision of a, a more consistent place to gather so that they can gather as they've been instructed as well. And... We pray for the different folks there that are unsaved. Uh, we pray for the children of Josh and Becky that, that are unsaved. We pray, Lord, that you would grant them repentance and faith, that they may confess Christ as Lord. Lord, we pray for the many, um, the many believers in our country and around the world that experience different types of persecution and restrictions but even to the point of imprisonment in some places you know each and every one of them lord as dear children we pray for their ultimate relief of difficulty but that they would be they would be all the more strengthened and diligent to preach your gospel and spread the the good news of Christ that others may come to saving faith. In Christ's name we pray this morning. Amen. Thank you, Isaac. Let's take our hymn books again and stand and turn to number...
658, we'll sing about putting on the full armor of God. 658, soldiers of Christ arise.
Good morning. Our Good reading morning. today will be from Psalm 34, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 463. I'll be reading the introduction to the psalm from Spurgeon's Treasury of David. I just want to remind you of Pastor Wayne's uh, comment that Treasury of David is available online. So you can look at this for free. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon says of this psalm <clears throat> uh, on the title, Psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Uh, that's the, the title of the psalm. Now, Spurgeon's comments of this transaction, which, which reflects no credit upon David's memory. We have a brief account in 1 Samuel 21 verses 1 through 15. Although the gratitude of the psalmist prompted him thankfully to record the goodness of the Lord in vouchsafing an undeserved deliverance, yet he weaves none of the incidents of the escape into the narrative, but dwells only on the grand fact of his being heard in the hour of peril. We may learn from his example not to parade our sins before others, as certain vainglorious professors are wont to do, or who seem as proud of their sins as old Greenwich pensioners, referring to retired British military personnel, uh, of their battles and their wounds. David played the fool with singular dexterity, but he was not so real a fool as to sing of his own exploits of folly. In the original, the title does not teach us that the psalmist composed his, this poem at the time of his escape from Achish, the king or Abimelech of Gath which is to say that Abimelech was a title like Pharaoh. It was not the person's name. Akish was his name. But that is, it is intended to commemorate that event and was suggested by it. It's well to mark our mercies with well-carved memorials. God deserves our best handiwork. David, in view of the special peril from which he was rescued, was at great pains with this psalm and wrote it with considerable regularity in the almost exact accordance with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This is the second alphabetical psalm, the 25th being the first, and the alphabetical psalms are also referred to as acrostic psalms. No. And then division. The psalm is split into two great divisions at the close of Psalm 3410, when the psalmist, having expressed his praise to God, turns in direct address to men. The first 10 verses are a hymn, and the last 12, a sermon. John MacArthur uh, calls the two divisions testimony and teaching. But he, he divides the psalm the same way as Spurgeon did. Let us then hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And then one of my favorite verses, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious God, by whose unspeakable mercy we are again permitted to present our tribute of thanks and praise, we bless you for the continual manifestations of your goodness to us and to all the children of men. By your wisdom, O Lord, you've founded the earth. By understanding, you've established the heavens. By your knowledge, the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down the dew. We praise you for all your gracious dealings toward us, and we beseech you of your great goodness to, reconcile, to receive the thank offerings with which we come before you this day. We thank you in particular that we can meet here freely to worship you despite this pandemic, and that none of the, among us has died because of it. We do pray, nevertheless, that you would not linger in judgment, but would grant a quick end to the pandemic, while still using it to revive the church in America and bring many to repentance and faith in Jesus our Lord. We acknowledge, Heavenly Father, the imperfection of our best services. We confess that we are sinners before you and altogether unworthy of your mercies. But we know that you are good and send rain on the just and on the unjust. Give us a due sense of your wonderful condescension and forbearance, that our hearts may be moved to contrition for our past negligence and sin and excited to new diligence, zeal, and devotion for the future. May your word come in power to us and may Jesus Christ become more precious and real to each of us. We beseech you, O Lord, to pour down upon the inhabitants of this land the spirit of unfeigned gratitude for all your mercies. May they enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. May they honor you with all their substance and with the first fruits of all their increase. Advance your kingdom both here and abroad. Continue with us now in our worship to the glory of the name of your son, Christ Jesus, through whom we pray, amen.
one last time and stand, and we're going to sing the solid rock number 511. We'll all sing the first and fourth verses, women only on the second verse, men only on the third verse. We'll all sing the choruses together. 511, the solid rock, all together on the first verse. in Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone. Our text this morning is going to be found in John chapter 15. We'll begin at verse 18 where we left off last week, John 15, 18. And I'll read through the remainder of the chapter and we'll just see how this unfolds today. I'm not sure how much of this I'll be able to get through today, uh, but there's always next Lord's Day, so we'll see what we can do. Jesus weaves his teaching here in John 15 like he has in chapter 14 and chapter 16 and chapter 17, much like a tapestry, if you will, with various threads through it, and so the themes are kind of interwoven, and as we bring it apart, I'll focus on just a few that are here. There are many, and it would be helpful to focus on them to get a better understanding of what his teaching is to his disciples the night before he was betrayed. He needs to prepare them, and quite frankly, this is applicable to all who will follow Christ, who will be a disciple, who will be a Christian, 
It is great training for all of us to hear and heed the words of Jesus Christ. Notice in chapter 15, though, he mentioned this concept of love quite a bit in John chapter 15. Verse 9, for example, he reminds them how much that he cherishes them, he loves them. In, in what way should they think of it? Well, in that perfect love, that eternal love between the Father and the Son, that love that will continue forever and ever, that is his expression of the love for his disciples. All of his disciples, you indeed, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, the love which he has for you is beyond your imagination. He goes on and expresses it again in, in verse 10, and he calls the, the disciples to do what? To abide in his love. He had already talked about abiding in him, that is remaining in him, enduring in him, if you will, being faithful in him. And now he expresses this in terms of his love. Abide in that love. So think about the love of God in Christ for you, that communion you have, and then abide in it. Remain in it. Think about it. Then he goes and gives a commandment to his disciples that indeed then they should express this love specifically, note this verse 12, to one another. Love one another. How? The same way that I have loved you. Now, he repeats this, and remember, this is characteristic of his teaching here that we have. He repeats it just a little different way, but essentially the same concept. He says to these things, verse 17, he says, I command you so that you will love one another. Strong emphasis. The love that we have with, through Christ, with God, and the love then it, that is expressed for one another. Verse 18 is quite a shift, because now you hit, hear the word hate. We're at love, emphasize, and now we have the word hate. Might help us to understand why he finishes with this theme once again to love one another, because there is going to be in the days ahead to these disciples, and I'd argue for all disciples, for all Christians, a world of hate. Hate for you specifically, if you are a follower of Christ. And so the command then to love one another has a great practical emphasis. The world hates you. He says in verse, 10, verse 18, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. This if that's mentioned in verse 18 is not a hypothetical if. <clears throat> the construction in the original language makes that clear. We call this a first-class conditional statement. It's essentially something that is not a possibility in other words, it might happen, but it will happen. It's just a matter of when. When that occurs, when that is expressed, know this, that it hated Christ before you. The disciples, 
the church then will need to love one another because the world will hate you. How do you know the world's going to hate you? Well, Jesus said it. That should be enough. But then he emphasized it. Hey, you want the exemplar? Look at me. And we know what's going to happen the very next day. He will be crucified. They will crucify God incarnate, the Lord of glory, the perfect, flawless one. What is going to follow is great hate. And specifically, we know if you read through the book of Acts, great persecution comes about. They preach the gospel after Christ is risen and ascended on high. And there is great conflict that occurs. Initially, it's with the Jews. As they preach the gospel, they don't want to hear it. Even though Christ has died, even though he was buried, even though he rose again, and even though he ascended on high, even though he did all these works, they don't want to hear it. By the time you get in the book of Acts, in chapter 7, you have Stephen, first martyr, listed there. They don't want to hear what he has to say. Stephen, the evangelist, preaching this gospel. Instead, they pile stones upon him. This persecution continues on. We know in the Roman world as well, we can look at it historically from Nero, somewhere around 64. Paul is most likely to have been caught up in that persecution. But that persecution continued all the way really at various points, at various levels, but to the church from the governmental authorities it continued on until the Edict of Milan which was around 313. If you follow Christ then, he was telling his disciples what's going to come next, great persecution. It will come at some point in time. And indeed it did, and Jesus' words then foretell literally what would happen. All of these disciples, all of them, would be martyred, that is, killed for their faith, for preaching the gospel. Save one, the apostle John, who is said to have been boiled in oil, and somehow the tough bird escaped that experience, probably not a delightful one at all, only to be imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos because God providentially had more for John to do before he left. And that was in addition to writing those great epistles at the end of our uh, scripture, but also the final revelation or explanation that Jesus Christ gives for the end of the age, the book of Revelation, as we call it. This command to love one another in context here in John 15, you can see why it needed to be emphasized. The love of God in Christ for those that are in Christ, called to abide in his love, and then to love one another, that is to love other disciples. These disciples will sacrifice much. They indeed will ultimately sacrifice their life, but to follow Christ for many of them as well as others who heard their word and then followed Christ, often it was a great decision that created conflicts within their own family. 
And this would have been a, a great rift in that day. He created great conflicts in the community itself, economically. It cost them much to follow Christ. And therefore, they would need to bind together and love one another. It is no different today. One of the benefits of the recent pandemic, if you will, and the political winds that are blowing in our day gives increasingly validation of this truth that Christ said a few thousand years ago. It's bringing this to great clarity of who the church actually is. We've been spared much of persecution in our culture. I mean, it's nothing compared to the hardships and things that they went through and that other people are experiencing, as Isaac mentioned earlier, throughout the world, even this day. Cultural Christianity in America is barely distinct, or at least it has been in many, many quarters, not all, but many. It's been barely distinct from the world. It's a form of religion that is not much more than pagan idolatries, idolatry dressed up in Christian cliché. Prosperity gospel has gained a great following. But the foolishness of it becomes increasingly difficult to hear in times of great financial distress and difficulty. This shallowness of the seeker-sensitive movement is seen through its substantial hardships. It's kind of hard to to move forward when folks aren't seeking so much. They created an environment in which, well, we would just make church as much as the, like the world as we can, and therefore people will come. Others have looked to empty ritual to engage in some sort of superstition, but again, the realities of hardship make those difficult to do when facing a real crisis. We haven't experienced much hardship in comparison to other times, people, and places. I think largely that has, we have been spared that because of the, um, at least some of the positive footings that describe the foundation of our country. There's a great Christian heritage, or at least those who affirmed that concept by our founders. And if you're not sure, read some of their works that they wrote for a long time. And those that were in leadership of our country, the kinds of documents that they wrote. And if you're not sure about that, it's actually etched in stone. Just take a tour around D.C. wherever the gates come down. It's actually etched in stone in many of the monuments. 
Scripture itself, attributions to God, calls for prayer. But as we drift more and more towards a secular society, that is one that is guided more by the mind of man, certainly godless or a mind that has an image of God other than who he actually is, that may actually bring greater clarity to the church of who really is in Christ. And I'll tell you one way they'll be identified is if you hold the Christian values, that is those values that are actually taught by Christ and his apostles, you'll find that there will be greater hostility towards you. It is appalling to me even this day, and in many ways I weep. Many who had great influence, who called themselves evangelicals, I call them Big Eva, who control these large institutions funded by folks who want righteousness. They were very eager, many of them, not all, but many, to support leaders whose primary objective was to increase the murder of unborn children. And perhaps just as bad to mutilate young girls in a concept they call transgenderism. It is scary and an alarming trend. And those two things are just affirmed by the current administration. They promised that they would pass the Equality Act. And by executive order, they put forward some of the safeguards against abortion and have promoted this ungodly idea. But they promised that on day one, and they have kept those promises. Beloved, if you want to destroy yourself, God will allow you to do so. Paul would tell the church at Rome that he looked at the sea of humanity and said that, well, they didn't see to acknowledge God in their mind, and therefore God gave them up. He gave them up to a reprobate mind a debased mind, and I call it an insane mind. And then it's expressed in their life as they are, fulfilled, as they are, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, what God has commanded, everyone does. They, they have it in their moral conscience that we all have. We know this is wrong. Though they know that, they practice such things. They know that deserves death. That's an abomination of God. 
Yet not only do they do them, but they give a hearty approval to those who practice them. The effects of this godless agenda will reach beyond those who desire to practice such wickedness. That's one thing. But giving over to this creates this reprobate mind, a scarred conscience, if you will. And those who are promoting such not only want you to permit it, but now to celebrate it. And if you're not in celebration, affirmation of it, any condemnation as Christ gave, as the apostles gave, will then be considered hate speech. For which you will suffer persecution in various forms. Those are the days that are ahead. We should expect it. If you live for Christ, if you have a, the mind of Christ, not a reprobate mind, you will be hated by those who have a reprobate mind. Paul told his young protege who was going to follow him in ministry, not about the great wealth and riches and notoriety, power and privilege that he might get, No, he told young Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, that is, directed by all that Christ has taught, abiding in Christ, right? You're following Christ, Christian, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. And then he describes the future. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13. This is the last book Paul wrote before he got his head chopped off. He had to prepare a young man for ministry. He would be facing this, bad to worse. It mitigates against some eschatology that has the idea that things are going to get better. That eschatology wanes a bit in times of great trouble, as it did in both world wars and certainly as it is yet to come. Now, I don't think it's going to get better. It's going to get worse. Jesus spoke of this said that the world would hate you. The apostles said that very same thing. It is going to go bad to worse. And and how do you know if the world hates you? Know that it hated Christ. Have we read the gospel? And you're going to see it unfold as we continue to read through the gospel of John. Encourage you to do that. How was the perfect one treated? Christ. They killed him. They hated Christ. If you follow Christ, expect them to hate you. That's what he's saying. The positive, he has already laid out, and that needs to be in your mind as well. The world may hate you, and that is true. That's what he's getting into now, but set it in the understanding that God absolutely loves 
not in a general way, but in a specific way, those that are in Christ, he has covenanted together with you. This is not a general form of God's love. It is a specific love that is granted to those that are in Christ Jesus. He will never let you go. And so he says, abide in that. Remain in his love. This analogy of the vine in, in the branches. Re remember his love, the joy that is in Christ, the friendship that Christ has given you deeper than any other relationship you will ever have, and an eternal relationship. These aspects are perfect, eternal, and they need to be reminded to the believer as they are called then to ministry and to serve in a wicked world. There's much happiness in Christ. There's much joy in Christ. And I hope you wake up every morning, regardless of whatever circumstances you might find yourself in, to be at peace with Christ and great joy. Whether you're suffering some great physical trauma, financial trauma, some sort of thing going on in the culture, Christ is your life. This temporal life, the believer can expect to experience hardships. A life of ease is the exception to the rule. That's what we're saying. Now, with that in mind, let's read it in context, and I'll go through the end of the chapter, and because my introduction is an hour and a half, we're about out of time. No, we'll get through some of this. John 15 and verse 18. Think through this as I read in context what Jesus has already said. Then he turns to his disciples after he says to love one another. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the contrary, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And let me just add a word of interpretation 
explanation that I won't get to today, just so it won't linger through the next week. If you had question, this they would not have been guilty what he of sin there in verse 22. He's just simply emphasizing, listen, Jesus Christ has come. The full revelation, that's what they are now guilty of, the completed revelation of God. There are, there are now no more excuses for anybody. God has been patient. He came in the flesh in Jesus Christ, walked among us and lived a perfect life, performed miracles that no one else could do, a voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Rejecting that, huh, it's a major guilt. Here, all of it, they're guilty of rejecting who and hating who? The son. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you give us a hearing of your word. May it be a help in ways that each of us will need in the days to come. Equip us to abide in your love, even in hateful times. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I look at this text of Scripture, I think my first question is, why does the world hate Christians so much. And as I alluded to at the beginning with, the world doesn't hate pseudo-Christians, if you will, superficial Christians, Christians who are engaged in some sort of superstitious activity. They don't hate that so much because they have all that. And that's very similar to what they do. It's just, you just use different lingo and different actions, you know. You might use a Ouija board over here and have some smoke and candles over here. Not a lot different. They understand that. And have a wild concert over here and a wild concert over here. Not, not a lot of difference. They don't hate that. They hate Christians because those who truly follow Christ, because they're different. There is a distinction. And by the world way, again, with me, I, when I think of it in my culture, I, I have not experienced much persecution. When I hear these words from Paul to Timothy, I think, well, you know, um, I get a little, but not a lot. Maybe more is on the horizon. I don't know. But it is helpful to think in a global setting. Again, as Isaac pointed out, it's true. And if you know about it, read about it. I know Julie reads the voice of the martyrs and keeps up with that from time to time. It's really difficult. I, there's many sources you can go to. I looked at one the other day, and according to this one, it's called Open Doors. They said that Christian persecution is higher today than at any other time in modern history. Again, from my worldview and perspective, from my front door to my back door, I don't see a lot. Not terribly so, but certainly in other countries. And they go on to mention that one in nine Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. 
thousands killed for their faith, thousands detained without any kind of trial or sentence, imprisoned, tax on tens of thousands of buildings and churches and facilities. Why is this happening? And will it happen in our culture? This article goes on to try to explain why it happens. They said they blame authoritarian governments, which may have ideas, religious ideology, and particularly Islam. Various extremist groups, as they note, violent war groups and so forth. Oh, they have some relationship to it, but, but not really according to our text. I don't think it gives us the answer as to why. There's something much deeper. Look at verse 18 in our text. The world hates you, Jesus said. No, it's hated me. It hates you if you're a true Christian in Christ because the world hates Christ. They don't hate a caricature of Christ. They don't hate the imagined Christ. They hate the incarnate Christ. That's who they hate. And how you even know him, there is one source that is right here. It isn't come from the mind of man. It comes from the mind of God. It is written in objective truth within holy scriptures. All persecution against Christians is really persecution against Christ. Remember, the Apostle Paul, before he was converted, he was called Saul. He was there and was a witness to Stephen's martyrdom. Christ met him and called him out and said, in Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the churches? <laughs> no, that's what he's doing. But he said, why are you persecuting me? The reason Paul was persecuting the churches is because he was persecuting Christ. He didn't fully recognize it. This persecution of Christ, it emphasizes here this oneness that the Christians have with Jesus Christ. You persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ. Jesus has already taught about this mutual relationship to those that are Christians in him. Verse 5 of chapter 15, you remember? Whoever abides in me and then I in him. There is a remaining on both sides that is a, a mutual relationship. Get this, the world hates Christ. And if you're abiding in him and he's abiding in you, guess who's going to also be on the hate list? You. Why? Because of Christ. That's his point. Look at verse 19, and I would just categorize this as the reason why the world hates because Christians are in Christ, and that, therefore that makes them counter-cultural. 
opposite. That's what creates the distinction. Look at verse 19 in our text. The world hates you, he says, but if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. See his point? You're not of the world, therefore they hate you. If you were of them, they love you. But because you're not of the world, therefore the world hates you. World here is the word cosmos. It just means a orderly system, if you will. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the planet. He's talking about ideologies of people. It's used here to describe a culture that is a culture from the perspective of fallen man under the influence of Satan. World here is used as descriptive of that realm, if you will, a realm of deceitful wickedness that characterizes the influence of Satan since the fall of mankind. Now, we'll jump around a little bit in Scripture, so you might want to keep your finger in John 15. We'll be back. But I'd rather you see the text in which this is described, this cosmos, this world. Paul elaborates on it in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and I invite you to turn there. He describes what this world system is, Ephesians 2. And, of course, he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, describing their condition, and it helps us understand the condition of the world. Prior to coming to Christ, Ephesians 2.1, he explains their condition. You were dead in trespasses, in sins in which you once walked. That is, their natural condition is spiritually dead due to sin, the sin nature they inherited from Adam. And it characterizes then their lifestyle. That's what it means by walk, their lifestyle. So what did that lifestyle look like? Continuing, following the course of this world, note that, two, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in three, the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. He's describing what the world is. It's the course of this world. That is the ideologies of this world, this system, this culture, that which comes from the mind of men. And what is that influenced by? What is that directed by? He calls them the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. It is a satanic system. And it is a spirit that continues to work, that ideology, that culture, in who? In the, and he describes, the sons of disobedience. This is in contrast to those that are in Christ. They would be the sons of obedience, right? If you love me, Jesus says, you will obey my commands. He says this over and over and over. One of the ways you could determine which son you are of obedience or disobedience is what is the direction of your heart? 
Again, he's not calling for, and people don't, I hope you don't miss that. He's not talking about a perfection in how you walk. He's talking about the direction of your walk, right? They're not sinless, but they do sin less in the sense that they are convicted of their sin, confess their sin, forgiven their sin, and have an inward drive towards obedience to Christ because they love Christ. Not to fulfill some list of requirements, but there is a love of Christ that compels them to want to be obedient. And so this is the contrast of who they once were. They were sons of disobedience. They followed the course of this world. They were just like everyone else, flowing down the stream of humanity. And whether they're aware of it or not, which most are not, it is directed by an influencer, none other than the one from the very beginning. You know, the liar, the murderer, Satan himself. Verse 3 He reminds the church at Ephesus, this is how everyone is. This is the default state among whom we all once lived. And how do they describe it? Well, in the passions of our flesh. That is, whatever feels good, do it. No restraint, no restrictions. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, which were by nature then children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the default condition, condemned already. God's wrath being on display. You know how some of it's being on display? If you want to fulfill the desires of your flesh, he will give it to you and it will destroy you. If you want to kill unborn children, you can do it and it will destroy you and leave great scars. Great pain. If you want to destroy little girls, you can do it. It will bring a culture down. And beloved, that's where the course of this world is going. Stand up against that. And you will be persecuted, and maybe more so in days to come. But I can't leave this text until I look at a positive note, <laughs> because this is one of the weeping places in Scripture, isn't it? Verse 4. Be- because I'm in that group of following the world, following the prince and the power of the air, a disobedient son whose wrath of God is justly on me, but something happens. God, verse 4, being rich in his mercy because of the great love which with he with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
God who is rich in mercy. And here great praises flow, doesn't it? His great love with which he loved us. These terms are put together. And then notice how you have life and that life is where it is in Christ. Raised up together with him forever and ever. I hope you note here in, in this text, as Paul expounds this to the church, that there is a distinction between those that, that, that are in the world and that those are in Christ. You see that? Christianity isn't just adding some phraseology and words to a worldly system. It isn't giving partial allegiance to one master and partial allegiance to another. And if that's what you've been told, you've been informed wrong. Christ is sovereign Lord and master of all. And he calls for absolute obedience to him. There is a distinction. No wonder the hatred exists. Because you're an odd man out if you're in Christ. And it may become clearer and clearer in days ahead, in your circumstances, maybe, maybe not. But that still exists. Regardless of the level of persecution, this is just an explanation of why it exists. Back to John, and I'll just, I'll just quote this for you because this is chapters ahead. Remember, Jesus is going to repeat these themes. So, so if you miss some of this now, that's fine. It's going to be brought up again. Seventeen, sixteen of John, he'll say in his high priestly prayer to the Father, in that prayer, which is absolutely beautiful, he'll say, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. He is praying for you, for all who would follow Christ, and including in his prayer is simply this, they're not of this world, <laughs> as Christ is. Would Christ be one who follows the course of this world, who would follow the prince of the power of the air, who would be a son of disobedience? No, that doesn't characterize Christ. He will take out God's word and say, get behind me, Satan. And therefore, all that are in Christ are also not of this world. Because they're in Christ. And Christ is not of this world. There are two kingdoms, beloved. Kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And the disciple is no longer in the kingdom of the world. He is swimming, if you will, against the current. Everyone else the crowd, everyone else is going in the opposite direction. The road is really wide. Everyone's doing it. It has a gate, and that gate is really broad. Everyone is going. The Christian, however, chooses a different path. It leads to Calvary. It's narrow, and it has an increasingly narrow gate. In the end, he's the odd man out. They hated Jesus, and they put him on a cross and crucified. 
As I think about this, I, particularly the hatred of the world and the world system, I can see why some people would hate me. I can be arrogant and prideful, highly opinionated. Sometimes I get a little hot under the collar, believe it or not. Impatient, frustrated, maybe a touch of anger, just not as kind as I need to be. I don't want to do that, but occasionally you do it. So I can understand why some people would be annoyed with me and maybe not like me and maybe even hate me. But why would they hate Christ? He always did righteousness. He always said it in the right way. Any anger expressed was righteous indignation. And they couldn't even respond or deal with him when, when he cleared the temple out. Even though there were plenty of folks in the Roman guard right there. And plenty in the temple guard. They didn't touch him. When he asked them, is there anything I said wrong? They, their mouths were shut. Not me. But ultimately, beloved, I think what, what's the emphasis here in Christ is it isn't just because occasionally you do something that irritates people. Maybe you, you said the right thing but didn't say it as perfectly as you should have or whatever it might be. In the end, that's really not it. Say it as well as you can, as perfectly as you can. It's really not about that. It is because they hate Jesus Christ. That's why. He is not of this world. He's of another kingdom, and he doesn't quite fit in. And if you are fitted into Christ, neither will you. I'll finish with this, maybe. Just John's further elaboration on this idea and how to at least overcome to some degree. So let's finish with this and go to his epistle, 1 John. I highly recommend reading it. It's only five chapters. If you're looking for a Bible reading plan, try reading that every day for a week. Just take the five days and do it for a month. Every day. One chapter. Doesn't take long. You might want to do it for a couple more months after that. It's profound. Chapter 2 of 1 John, chapter 2. And we'll just hear this one selection. Here's the admonition then of this same apostle who wrote this and recorded this teaching of Jesus in John 15, who was taught by Jesus himself and as apostle is commissioned and appointed to teach us today. His response then to those that are in Christ who are not of this world his response and admonition in verse 15 of chapter 2, do not love 
the world, nor thinks in the world. Now, that's worth pausing and thinking about. Don't love the world, the world system, the ideology, the culture, nor the things in the world, those things that are temporal and part of this life. Should your heart be there. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's very black and white when he communicates this, and I hope you, you can feel it and see it, just much like Jesus was as well. He's asking then, you could use this to examine yourself. Where are your heart's affections? Well, don't be in love with the world, the culture, the system. Don't continue flowing down that path. What is the danger? Well, it's evidence that the love of the Father is not in him. And then he explains why in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The satanic system. You see the two kingdoms idea? This desire of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of that, that world system, the directive that they come up with from the very mind of man, it is satanic. It's under that influence. It is not from God. And then he explains, verse 17, the world's passing away. Why, why, would, you, why would you want to put your heart in the world and the world system and depend on all of that because it, it is passing away. It's along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will what? Abide forever. Why? Because Christ is abiding forever. He's trying to dramatically point out these two worlds and where your heart should be. So recognize this then as we've given this admonition to live in the kingdom of God. So how are you going to, to accomplish that? He'll give you a bit of an answer at, the, at his last chapter in chapter 5. Turn there. 1 John 5. So I'd like to overcome the world. Lust of the flesh, eyes, pride of life. I want to remain in Christ's love. How will I accomplish that? Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. It's going to take a supernatural work by his grace. You'll have to be born ag again, born from God, born from above. And those that are will be then equipped to overcome the world because Christ has overcome the world. He'll say this, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. It's not talking about your ability to believe. He's talking about faith in that person that is in Jesus Christ. Who said it's finished? 
who has overcome. He is victorious. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you confess him as Lord? Do that always. Abide in him and indeed the rest will just pass away. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that your people would have great faith. Great faith not in their abilities to slay passions that are not from you. Feelings that do not come from faith. That because of Christ our Lord who is indeed praying for us continually. And I pray our faith would be made strong by Jesus Christ our Lord. Give us great comfort in the love of Christ and great courage as we face whatever might come our way that we find our strength in Christ and Christ alone. I pray in his name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment to think on these things privately where you indeed are. to us and have a faith that indeed is victorious over whatever may come our way in days ahead. May the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the joy in Christ, and that incredible communion we have with Christ carry us through in times of great ease, and in times of great difficulty. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Leviticus 27 says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy. Let's all stand in tune to 534 in our hymnals. 534. Take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be
Gracious Father, we pray that we may be believers who are strong in the Lord, that we may stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place. May our feet be fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. May you take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, so that we may be able to stand in the evil day and boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Amen and amen. <laughs>